Good morning, Tri-County Bible Church. It's a pleasure and honor to join you here today. I've been looking forward to coming back for a long time and I'm happy that today my wife Kathy is able to join me here, but I, I promised her that I wouldn't make her stand up. The sermon today will be a bit different from the norm, a combination of sociology and homily. And the subject matter is difficult. However, I hope that you find it challenging, motivating, and encouraging. As we seek to honor, glorify, and enjoy our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, living out our faith well in these difficult days, getting our sexual understanding and ethic right is critically important. My prayer is that this talk will be a small contribution to that end. Let's begin with our passages today from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 15 through 20, and I'm using the English Standard Version. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I think we can add to that, praise God. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. About three and a half years ago, in a sermon covering a short passage in the book of Romans, then Southern Baptist Convention Pre President J.D. Greer stated the following, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Now, I realize that Pastor Greer was trying to make a larger point, namely that we should not focus on sexual sin only while ignoring religious pride and greed. I, I get that. Still, his claim that the Bible only, quote, whispers about sexual sin 
is totally, categorically, completely false. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul sure seemed to be shouting about it. Just as he also had, ironically, in the very passage that Greer was preaching on, most of which involved Paul using very powerful language to condemn homosexuality. Another ironic fact is that here, J.D. Greer was contributing to one of the worst forms of religious pride we see among today's evangelicals, even though he said he was concerned about religious pride. That is, that like the Corinthians, we soft-pedal sexual sin so long as it involves consensual acts between adults. In doing that, we pridefully substitute our own moral notions for the judgments of God clearly revealed to us in Scripture. What's more prideful than that? In fact, in the chapters that precedes the one we read from today, chapter 5, Paul forcefully points out that it was Corinthian arrogance and conceit that prevented them from taking grave sexual sin within their church seriously and from requiring true repentance from the guilty person. Repentance that was necessary to honor God, protect the purity of the church, and promote the offender's own good. Look at verse 2, then verse 6 and 7 in chapter 5. And he's speaking about their refusal to deal with sexual sin. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Remember, in the Bible, leaven refers to pride and hypocrisy. We see this, for example, Jesus talking about this at the beginning of Luke 12. Leaven puffs up bread, just as pride puffs up sinners. Claiming to be God's faithful people while tolerating sexual immorality, Paul is saying here, is arrogance not humble submission to God. According to scripture, all sexual relationships outside of marriage between one man and one woman are sexually immoral, period. We could cover numerous other supporting passages, as I do in my book, and as I'm sure your pastors would easily be able to unfold and discuss with any of you here. A clear mark of a redeemed people is not that they will be perfect in this or in any other area. But they should take it seriously. They should flee sexual immorality just as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. And what price did he pay rather than sin? They ought to hate it, resist it, reject it. As Paul states in our passages today, they may have lived in such sins before they came to know the Lord. But once they have come to Christ in repentance and faith, they should strive by God's grace to leave these sins behind. A redeemed people should see that rejecting sexual immorality is part of honoring God's beautiful design of marriage, what God created marriage for, and the fruitful act that for countless reasons he is reserved for married couples alone. We partly see this, and Paul's pointing out in this passage, that the prostitution degrades the sacred act of joining two as one flesh, which is, of course, a way God describes marriage from the very beginning of the Bible. 
We see this even more as Paul continues to the topic of marriage in chapter 7, urging believers to fulfill their sexual desires only within the bond of covenant matrimony. A redeemed people should see that rejecting sexual immorality is a key mark of true saints who know that God has redeemed them and who are grateful for this indescribable gift. They should understand that each and every aspect of themselves, including their bodies, belongs to God. They should use their bodies not merely for personal gratification, but to honor and glorify him. Such people should not wish to sin against the Holy Spirit by sexually profaning their own bodies, which are temples in which the Spirit of God dwells. And a redeemed people should not lightly sin against their own bodies. They should see the self-destructiveness of sexual immorality, which is evident all around us. But they should also understand that God has joined their bodies to Christ. They should understand that God will someday resurrect them in their bodies. And that in their bodies they will live forever in the presence of the Lamb. Far from the Bible whispering about sexual immorality, biblical teachings about this are frequent, clear, and urgent. In fact, as R.C. Sproul has noted historically, the biggest problem historically for Christians understanding sex was not that they tended to tolerate sexual sin, but that they went too far in the other direction and treated all sex, even sex within marriage, as stained and sinful. Uh, You could only justify it by the fact that you can't have uh, children without sex. Now, we certainly do not want to fall off that side of the law. Sex in its proper place is beautiful. It is lovely. It is a good gift of God that married people should anticipate with joy. But I think that we can admit that treating all sex as somehow polluted and sinful is not a big problem in today's evangelical church. Our problem is treating sexual sin too lightly. In fact, we increasingly do not treat it as sin at all. At this point, I would like to share some facts with you using graphs. These show that in what we believe and in what we practice, professing evangelicals have, to an alarming extent, rejected biblical teachings about sex. This is particularly true for younger believers, but it's a problem across the board. After doing that, I would like to point us back to some biblically rooted solutions, realizing that we do not have time to deal with them as much detail as I would like. But let me pause before I do that. Lest anything I have already said or am about to say discourages you, let me say this clearly. None of this is meant to demean anyone. We are in this together. I am a sinner talking to other sinners. Our young people are facing serious cultural challenges in this area And we older believers have often not equipped them or even understood the challenges they face as well as we should have. The problems of the young are our failings too. Sexual temptations are powerful and most people will wrestle with them and sometimes fail. 
This is without getting into all the ways that we sin in our thoughts and hearts. And as the mobsters, I guess, in Brooklyn would say, forget about it, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I mean, if I'm going to take Jesus seriously, you know, I'm I'm dead where I stand. Just kind of makes grace kind of nice. Makes the atoning blood of Christ pretty nice. Now, I I talked to Pastor Joe a little bit about this, and let me add this caveat, because I know and I understand that there's people in different stages of your Christian experience, and maybe some here that don't know Christ at all. I came to Christianity um, as a pretty screwed up, broken person. I had spent my first four years as a Christian, three years, three and a half years, working in a factory, just figuring out how to put one foot in front of another. I didn't even finish college until I was 26. I was just trying to figure out how to get to work on time, tell people the truth. I was involved in the hippie lifestyle and everything that it involves from the time that I was 14 years old. I brought terrible wreckage on myself and other people, and God was merciful to me. And I was saved in a church at Edinburgh State College, now State University at the time, that at the time, I, we were, I was in that town. I wasn't actually in college at first. I was just in the town. We were rated by Playboy magazine to be the number one party school in the country. It was an art school of over 900 students plus a very massive theater program. We had a huge gay population in town and a lot of people in our church who had come out of that lifestyle. So if, if you're looking for somebody to thunder at you or, or, or point fingers from on high, I'm the wrong guy. That's not how we approach this. I, I think we dishonor God as much by approaching this type of sin that way than we do by f- refusing to mention it and leaving people suffering in their sin. I think it's just as bad. If there's no grace in it, We shouldn't be talking about it. It's not okay to sin. We should resist it. But when we do sin, what becomes important is how we deal with that sin before God and with his people moving forward. God starts with us where we are at, not where we wish we were. So we consider these facts. Let's look at these matters from this standpoint. Let's assess honestly where we are and then consider how, in God's grace, we can move forward from this point forward. Uh, that Philippians passage was golden. That's how you walk with faith. Leaving behind. Looking ahead. First, we'll look at what evangelicals believe about the morality of consensual sexual relationships between unmarried men and women. Here I use data from the General Social Survey. The GSS surveys a couple thousand adults, 18 years of age and older, about every two years. Since most of the respondents are not evangelicals, to get a large enough sample of evangelicals, I put together the entire last decade so I'd have a bigger group. This first graph addresses whether the respondents believe that consenting sexual relations between unmarried women are wrong. The Bible answer, by the way, is always wrong. Notice that for all ages from 18 through old age combined, most evangelicals did not give the Bible answer. 
Only four in 10 gave the Bible answer. Meanwhile, over one third claimed that consenting sex between unmarried adult men and women was, quote, not wrong at all. Combining this with the other weak answer, about half of evangelicals said it's either not wrong at all or only wrong sometimes. And when you ask them, by the way, it's usually, well, if you don't love the person or you don't use condoms or, you know, that kind of thing. Older saints tend to be far more conservative on this issue, and they're part of this larger group. Look at what happens when we break it down by age group and highlight the difference between the young and the old. The orange color bars represent liberal answers, not wrong at all or only sometimes wrong. In every age group except those 60 years of age or older, the majority of evangelicals gave the liberal answer. 60% of those 18 to 29 say that sex between consenting men and women is either not wrong at all or only wrong sometimes. Six out of 10. However, it matters how committed and active evangelicals are. One of the most important measures of this is simply how often they attend church services. In this graph, red is the more conservative and green the liberal. Notice that among all evangelicals who attend church less than weekly, large majorities are morally okay with all or more sex between men and women outside of marriage. The less they go to church, the more liberal they are. But even here, it's sobering that three in 10 weekly church-going evangelicals take a liberal position on sex outside of marriage. Three in 10. Now, let me make a couple of points before I move on. First, you know that only about half of professed evangelicals go to church every week? That means half of the evangelicals in this country do not sit under biblical teaching and in biblical fellowship week by week. You want to know why they're anemic? There's your answer. No commitment. Second, when we look at weekly churchgoers among the youngest group, even among the weekly churchgoers among the youngest group, four of ten still said that sex outside of marriage is okay. So even among regular churchgoers, everything is not okay. Now before I move on from beliefs, I want to look at huge increases in the degree to which evangelicals are now also okay with homosexual relationships. We'll start by looking at five points of history in the, in the general social survey starting in the late 1970s. Notice that among professing evangelicals, moral opposition to same-sex sexual relationships is declining while total acceptance of it, shown in the green bars, is rising sharply. Again, this includes older saints who still overwhelmingly agree with the Bible's condemnation of this type of sexual conduct. To look at younger believers in a much larger group, we'll shift to the National Survey of Family Growth, which is put out by the Center for Disease Control. This focuses on younger folk down to age 15 and uses huge samples which makes it easier to look at evangelicals separately and still deal with large numbers. One of the things that they ask in that survey is whether or not sexual relations between adults of the same sex are morally acceptable. Look at the trend here for younger evangelicals with males separated from females. 
And by the way, the smaller the percentage, the worse. So for example, by 2017 to 2019, only 45% of evangelical females ages 15 to 44 thought that homosexuality was wrong. That's 15 to 44. And when we break it down by age groups even more, it really looks discouraging. Large percentages of teens and young adults have shifted on this issue in the vast majority of females, especially. Look at the green bars, which are the females. Only about three in 10 evangelical females, 15 to 17, and only four in 10, ages 18 to 27, hold to the biblical teaching about homosexuality being morally wrong. The church has completely caved on this issue, and the future looks worse than the present. Now, what about those who are more religiously committed? Keeping it simple and just looking at weekly church attenders, we find that those who attend church more often are more likely to remain faithful to biblical teaching on homosexuality, but it can be discouraging. For example, among all evangelicals 15 to 44 in the NSFG, more than, more than one in three weekly churchgoers believes that homosexuality is not clearly morally wrong. This is evangelical to go to church every week between 15 and 44. And by the way, that figure holds across the age groups. So you can see there on that pie chart the percentage of even weekly church-going evangelicals that reject biblical teaching on this issue. Now, I know that time is moving on here and that graphs and number facts can wear people out. They wear me out. So let's move on to actual participation and just heterosexual activity outside of marriage. And then we'll move on from, from this. We will stick with the National Survey of Family Growth, focusing only on evangelicals who have never been married. To be both sensitive and brief, we will only look at percentages engaging in sexual intercourse rather than all the other types of sexual activity that the survey addresses and that I deal with in my book. So the total reality is actually worse. This only deals with just the most serious form of sexual activity. You can see here that far too many of our unmarried young people become sexually active even in their early teenage years. The vast majority of our evangelical young people are sexually active as they move into young adulthood. By ages 23 to 27, we're in the three quarters range among those who are not married. And by the way, the average marriage age now for men is close to 30 and for women is close to 27. There is a good deal of promiscuity among our sexually active young people as well. For example, out of all never married evangelicals who have ever had sexual relations among those 18 to 22, most sexually active single evangelicals, either male or female, have already had three or more sex partners. By 23 to 27, we have hit six in 10 of both genders who are sexually active at all have had three or more separate partners. 
Among evangelical girls, 15 to 27, who have ever had sexual relationships, more than one and three, even at that young age, more than one and three have already had three or more partners. Now, setting aside, and I, by the way, we don't set aside the sin issue, but I can tell you from a public health standpoint, that is an absolute disaster. Now, once again, it is important to remember that commitment matters. Looking just at church attendance, never married evangelicals who attend church weekly or more do much better. But again, even those that we see week by week in the pews are, all, are not always doing as well as we might think. Among those 15 to 17, church attendance does not make any difference. Now, I think that's partly because they're more often have to go to church, and so they, they're not showing their own commitment. And while they are less sexually active than those who attend less frequently or not at all, the majority of those unmarried evangelicals who attend church weekly or more are sexually active. In fact, three quarters of evangelical never married males who attend church at least weekly are sexually active. So what can we say at this point? By the way, that we're done with the numbers. So what can we say at this point comparing evangelical practices and beliefs about sex compared to what the Bible teaches? I'm going to give you the short answer. We are in serious trouble. So what should we do about this? Again, Regrettably, I can only hit a handful of main themes today. Hopefully, over time, you will dig into my book and other helpful resources and explore constructive solutions. And by the way, I can see that you're already doing that just in the dating class, that you guys take this very seriously. So I know that your church has been providing good teaching and support, so I know you have a lot to build on. So here are some suggestions. First, do not begin by assuming that your own church is all right. That it is just the other congregations messing up the statistics. Instead, find out. Make a sober, realistic assessment of where the people in your congregation are really at on this issue. This means that you have to be willing to have honest discussions at every age level. If you find out that things are better here than these national averages, there's still going to be issues to address. Don't be overconfident. If you see that the situation is not good, acknowledge it and begin moving forward to address specific problems. Confident that God is for you as you seek to be faithful to him. It's what you do now that matters. I would say something similar to individuals. If you are sinning sexually, confess and forsake your sin and make yourself accountable to a pastor, your spouse. If you're younger, to your parents. If you have, by God's grace, not fallen into these sins and your beliefs are orthodox, avoid complacency. And remember that purity extends not only to our actions and maintaining right belief, but to our thoughts 
and our heart. There is much for all of us to repent of. Moreover, what we harbor in our thoughts and hearts will eventually express themselves in our beliefs and actions overtly if we do not deal with our heart and our thought by the grace of God. In short, for those who are doing well, as Paul says later in this book, once again addressing pride, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Chapter 10, verse 12. This applies not just to individuals, but to groups as well, to churches. And for those of us who are not doing well, whether as a church or as individuals, we have the excellent promise of Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Next, there will be no real biblical sexual ethic that is not rooted in sound theology and anthropology. God is the creator of all things. He is all-powerful. He is perfect in holiness. He is awe-inspiring. We must love and fear him above everyone and everything else. We have nothing. We are nothing without God. We are utterly dependent upon God. We are weak. We are prone to sin. We are inconstant, variable, double-minded. And that's a real we. Our understanding is as less than a head of a pin next to the limitless ocean of his perfect knowledge and wisdom. We need to remind each other and ourselves continually of what God said to Job about who he is versus who Job is. And by the way, if he could call out Job like that, who is the most righteous man in the earth, he can certainly call me out like that. <laughs> I think Job had, had more standing on that issue than I do. Evangelicals' widespread rejection of God's sexual teaching is rooted in a deficient theology and anthropology. We too often have an impoverished understanding of God and an inflated, unrealistic view of ourselves. Sociologists and cultural specialists have long documented that evangelicals and other religious people, especially the young, increasingly embrace something called moralistic therapeutic deism in place of true biblical Christianity. This means believing that just, God just wants us to be a good person as our culture defines it, that he wants us to be happy however we define it, so long as we don't hurt anyone else. He's become more our therapist and more our buddy than the sovereign God whom we rightly honor and fear. In my book, I relay a story told by youth ministry expert Walt Mueller about a young Christian woman who was an invited speaker at an evangelical teen conference that he, he attended. She shared this story. Her and her boyfriend had started having sex and felt guilty about it. But as they prayed about it together, they came to realize that God just wanted them to be happy. And since having sex made them happy, God was comfortable with them having sex. 
The crowd soaked it up appreciatively. By the way, according to Walt, they applauded this. Walt was horrified. That is straight moralistic therapeutic deism. That's what it looks like. That is not biblical Christianity, whereas Psalm 119 repeatedly tells us our happiness and safety is bound up in knowing and obeying by grace the word of God. Do we, like the writer of that psalm says in verse 11, store up God's words in our hearts that we might not sin against him? Third, we should not look for quick fixes or anything outside the framework of what the Bible describes as normal Christianity. This means the disciplines of Bible study and prayer and striving for personal faithfulness every day. We should model this in the home and in the life of the parents and in the family's lives. This is essential, just day by day walking it out. Normal Christianity means faithfulness to our corporate lives as believers in the local church, led by faithful men who preach the inerrant and fully authoritative word of God in season and out of season and try to strive to apply that in all the counseling and in all the teaching ministries of the church. Normal Christian churches teach that sound theology that I talk about. They communicate also what the Bible teaches about marriage and sex as it is connected to marriage, which is that unique two-as-one-flesh relationship, and they teach about that spiritually and practically. They provide this instruction not like, here are the rules, don't break them, like, that's the rule, going to slap your hand if you break the rule. No. They teach them in light of the rich tapestry of Christian revelation. They teach it in light of the big story of creation, fall, and redemption. And they teach it in light of God's limitless grace and power to those sinners who believe and place their trust in him. Normal Christian churches help believers appreciate how their own well-being is bound up in heeding these truths. They live this out faithfully day after day, week after week, year after year. They do not concoct new truths, but they apply the time-honored and eternal truths of the word of God to the unique challenges of the here and now. If we're going to benefit from any of this, growing in Christ, not only in our sexual ethic, but in every other way, we have to be deeply committed to and regularly in the company of God's people. What good is a Sunday school class you didn't join in with? What good is a sermon that you never heard? What good is the encouragement or admonition that you weren't there to receive? How is a pastor supposed to counsel someone who darkens their church door so regularly that they barely know them? We as individual Christians as families need to be committed to the local church. We need to be regularly involved in its worship and in its ministries. Our pastors should encourage that. And when we become lax in our commitment, they should admonish us to do better or otherwise help us if we have legitimate reason for having to absenting ourselves regularly. This is a vital and necessary way in which they care for our souls. When your pastors talk to you about lax church attendance, it's not because they're vain or they're bummed out. It's because they care about your souls. 
The writer of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, said this to discourage first century believers. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need this. I need this. All of us need this. Your pastors need this. We need it for no other reason than what the Apostle Peter said to struggling first century believers in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 8. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As you can see in lots of nature shows, at least for herd animals, predators pick off the stray, the lame, the weak, and the immature who are not within the protective company of their group. And I think if there's one quick way for the devil to bring down most people, it's this particular sin. It's probably the most powerful and dangerous sin that we confront in our mind, in our bodies, everywhere. It's, it's like the go-to Christian killer for Lucifer, you know. We are so frequently hurting and vulnerable when we live in a culture that increasingly hates and rejects Christianity and Christians and seeks to intermine it and us. Our children must contend with this in ways us older folks do not always fully appreciate. We need to plug into local Bible-believing churches shepherded by godly men who care about us enough to be honest with us or we're not going to make it. Finally, we must recognize the primary duties of parents for shaping their children, doing everything in our power to equip, strengthen, and encourage parents in this vital work. This includes strengthening their marriages, which is the hub of their home, so that the core is strong, so that the father and the mother are working together effectively in raising godly offspring. With this, parents have to take their duties seriously and see to it that their children receive sound teaching, including about sex and marriage. As we're reminded in Deuteronomy 11:19, we parents must teach God's statutes to our children talking of them when we're sitting in our house and when we're walking by the way and when we lie down and when we rise. In age-appropriate ways, this must begin as early as possible, often using excellent resources available, just as the kind that I suggest in the last chapter of my book. Parents must not shy away from discovering uncomfortable truths about what their children believe and do. It's tough but you need to know the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear. How, otherwise, you can't help them. When dealing with sin, they should not back down from being truthful and applying appropriate discipline, but they also must exhibit patience, humility, kindness, understanding, and compassion. Raising godly children is not a sprint. It's a long-distance marathon. Nor is it a race on straight level track. It's a path filled with steep inclines, rocks, ditches, easy stretches, tough stretches, success, failure. Can we be there for our children with understanding grounded in the Bible for the entire race from infancy to maturity? 
Overall, when we look at the passages from 1 Corinthians 6 that we've been considering today, we should see the larger picture within which Paul communicates a sexual ethic tied to a marital ethic to errant believers puffed up by false teaching and pride. He reminds them who God is, what he has done for them, what he has freed them from and for. He reminds them who is the Lord and who are his subjects. He reminds them who is the creator and who are the creatures. He reminds them who ordered nature and who must submit to that order in order to achieve any real good. He reminds them of the powerful and necessary role that the visible local church must play in teaching and enforcing God's commandments. Well, I've come to the end of my presentation. I know there is so much more that I would like to say than I have time for, and I probably took more time than I should. I know there is much for us to know that I don't even understand myself, even if I had time to cover it. But I do hope that this talk has provided sound information, warning, motivation, and a good start as you hopefully continue to dig into these matters, as I'm sure you've already been doing, as individuals in your families and in your church. Let me finish uh, with prayer. Lord Jesus, your goodness to us and your mercy is beyond comprehension. You are strong, we are weak. You are wise, we are often foolish and ignorant. These are weighty and difficult issues that are at the very heart of your design for the human race. We need to honor these teachings to live fruitful and faithful lives, but it is so hard, and the cultural headwinds are strong. Help us to embrace what was accurate and good in what was shared today, and identify and reject any error that I might have communicated. Growing individually and corporately in our understanding of and our faithfulness to your perfect moral law regarding sex. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.